All right, this morning we made, I won't say we made great progress as far as how much material we covered. We made important progress because we really, I feel we got to one of the most important parts of all of this in dealing with the dispensations. But we'll do a quick review and then we're going to get to where we really need to be. And if we, and we may have to go back over it a couple of times, whatever we need to do, because we really have now gotten to one of the most important parts of the entire system. Okay, so when we, if we go back through this quickly, first of all, what are the ba- when Schofield defines a dispensation, when Schofield defines a dispensation, he refers to a dispensation as a period of time where what happens? There's a test. So we kind of we kind of we kind of started kind of summarizing his understanding of a dispensation, a period of time in which there is a test that it appears to end in judgment and significant change, right? So time, test, judgment, change was the basic way we put it together, right? And I think, and I think that that works, and I, and I think that that... And the main thing to get from that is what, whether we're looking at the covenants or whether we're looking at the dispensations... If we see the constant failure, 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 that goes a long way to establish then this other concept that I, we are currently studying, which is the proper distinction between law and gospel. So it, this becomes very important in how you put these concepts together. But we, I think we can definitely see that. We have identified, or Schofield identified how many dispensations? Seven. And those seven are? Innocency? Conscience, human government, promise, law, grace, kingdom. And then he identified how many covenants? Eight. Those covenants are the Edenic, the Adamic, Noic, Abrahamic, Mosaic, Palestinian. I cannot stress the importance of that one again. Over and over and over. I'm going to remind you some of these are so important. Palestinian. Davidic, and the last one, new, yeah, the only way, it has to be the last one is the new, okay, those are the covenants, what we have clearly, but I think we've done a very good job in identifying is that there is, it's absolutely essential that we get this down, because I think in most studies on dispensationalism, they almost ignore this, right? You come to church, they'll tell you, here's the origins of dispensationalism. Schofield gives us seven dispensations. They'll give a brief summary of each one, and then they will, they will tell you whether it's a good system or a bad system, and then they move on. Well, what they failed to do is to show how Schofield connected what two concepts together the dispensation and the covenant. And so we are trying to look at both. I know it makes it a little clumsy in trying to do so, but it's very, 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 very important. Okay. So where did we get to when we ended this afternoon, we ended with uh, which covenant and with which dispensation? Okay. Number four and four. Okay. But that is the dispensation of promise and the, uh, the covenant of Abraham. And all of that begins in Genesis chapter 12, all right? Chapter 11 is where we have failure of what? The Noahic covenant and the, the, the failure of the dispensational test of human government, all right? Remember that? That's the Tower of 
Babel. Okay, all right. Then we turn the page to chapter 12. Again, I anyone using the 1917, I don't know the, the one you have, Sarah, if it's the same page, but it should be page 20 or close to um, Genesis chapter 12. Here we go. We talked about this, and I'm going I'm, I'm to spend a lot of time on this, okay? Here we go. The fourth dispensation promise from the call of Abraham to the giving of the law. That's very important, all right? Because he believes that this dispensation of promise contains a test. And he believes they failed this test at the giving of the law. This is a very important one. And this is one where we could have lots of debate and struggle with and try to figure out. But this is very, very important, all right? Everybody got that down? All right. During this same time, then there is the fourth or Abrahamic covenant. Now, we're going to look at both concepts here. We've looked at the dispensation. We have not broken down the Adamic covenant. But I, I, am gonna, I, I don't care if it takes me all night. We're going to go back through this again slowly until everyone has this down, until you're experts on it. Are you ready? Because I believe, at least from a hermeneutical standpoint, this may be the most important one. Yeah, the, well, the, the dispensation of promise and, and the Abrahamic covenant. Because this, is the, this changes the whole hermeneutic. Everything goes, comes to play right here. I mean, everything comes to play right here, right? So let's, let's go through this. Here we go. The fourth dispensation promise. For Abraham and his descendants, it is evident that the Abrahamic covenant made a great change. Very important, right? We have, we have a change. Here we go. We have another change, right? They became distinctly the heirs of promise. Now, he's, now he's very, being very specific. Who becomes the heirs of promise? Abraham and his descendants, all right? Very important. That covenant. Now, now see, he's, he's talking about the dispensation, but he now mentions the covenant. He's talking about the Abrahamic covenant. That covenant is, and this is the part we have to get down, holy, gracious, and unconditional. He says the covenant is completely of grace and unconditional. Everyone needs to get that down. The covenant is. The covenant is. He clearly don't, doesn't believe the dispensation is. All right? Because the dispensation must contain what? A test. Okay? But the covenant doesn't. This is going to be the first time he's going to separate these dramatically. All right? Here we go. Now, the descendants of Abraham had but to abide in their own land to inherit every blessing. So, the covenant is unconditional and gracious, but for them to receive the blessing of that covenant, they must be where? In the land. If, if you don't understand the theological significance of that, I, I, I don't even know what to tell you, right? Because that means then what is absolutely significant then throughout the rest of the Bible? The land, the land, the land, the land, the land. Because all of those promises in the covenant require them having the land. If they're not in the land, they don't get the blessings. They have to be in the land. Does everybody understand that? If the covenant is unconditional, right? 
That means God will have to put them in that land so that they can receive the blessings. And if you say, well, wait a minute, they didn't fulfill it. Well, then you're saying then, then the covenant wasn't unconditional. It was conditional. And then this comes into all kinds of problems. So how do we understand the Abrahamic covenant? Uh, so he's, he's talking about the covenant right now, but in the midst of talking about the dispensation. And he's going to tell us exactly why he's doing this, because it becomes very important. All right. Here we go. All right. Um, in Egypt, they lost their blessings, but not their covenant. In Egypt, they lost the blessing, but not the covenant. While in Egypt, they're not getting those blessings that were promised. But the covenant is still in effect. And the covenant was based on what? It's unconditional and gracious. Meaning that hey, even though they're not getting the blessings of it right now, that God is not going to fail to fulfill it. So far, so good. Right? Okay, here we go. The dispensation of promise. Now, now he switches back to the dispensation. He was just talking about the covenant. Now he switches back to the dispensation. The dispensation of promise ended when Israel rashly accepted the law. Now, this is where of all the passages we've looked at, not only do you need to know this dispensation probably above all and everything he says about it, Exodus 19.8 must become a scripture you need to just have memorized and we must know it, know it, know it, know it. This is like as, probably as important as the Palestinian uh, covenant. Because this passage, is, I mean, I don't, know, I, don't have, I don't know where to stand on this. I don't know. I, well, uh, I don't know if you guys have a, a strong stance on this. But Exodus 19.8, he says this is basically where they failed. This is where they messed up. Because in Exodus 19.8, they say what? Everybody can read it. What the Lord has spoken, we will do. And he said, all that he said that we will do. And he says that they do so rash, in a rash way. In other words, this is what he how he basically pictures it. Here they are. They're in the dispensation of what? Promise. And they turn from the promise and they go walk over and say, we'll take law. We'll take law. And we'll do it. And at that point, he says they failed the test. Now, that's a big claim. I don't know if I want to process it that way. I don't know if I can see it that way clearly. Now, I do agree. The minute they say we will keep the law, we know from, what, what do we do know from history? They can't, they don't. Right? We do know that. But he says that, that the dispensation I guess their test was, are they going to rely on the promises or are they going to turn to the law? Are they going to say, Lord, we're going to rely on your unconditional promise, not on the obedience to the law, because by the obedience of the law, we will not only will never inherit the land, we'll never be in the land, we'll never have anything. Does that everybody understand? Okay, now look what happens here. Here we go. Right, so the dispensation of promise ended when Israel rashly accepted the, uh, accepted the law. Grace had prepared a deliverer. Moses provided a sacrifice, uh, a sacrifice for they exchanged grace for 
law. They had exchanged grace for law. Everybody see that? The dispensation of promise extends from Genesis 12 to Exodus 19, 8, and it was exclusively for Israel. That's very important, that it's exclusively for Israel. Now, a lot of people don't see it that way. Uh, We have an entire divide within Christian theology over these issues. That God came and made a promise for for Abraham and his descendants, right? And it it was a covenant, and it was a dispensation of promise. And then they get to a point, and they're like, according to him, we don't want the promise. We're going to obey the law. And at that point, they fail in the dispensation. They can't fail the covenant. Why can they not fail the covenant? It's unconditional. Right? So, does this make sense? No? Does it make sense? Why does it make sense? Okay, it does make sense? It doesn't make sense? Okay, we're, we're, we're saying exactly what we said this morning, so you haven't missed anything. Well, I, 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 well, I don't think they should have said no. I think what he's saying is they should have said we can't. Lord, we can't. I know. And he says that's how they felt the test. He should have said we can't. We'll, we'll, we, 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 we'll only trust your promise. We can't trust in our ability to keep it. So he's almost in, say, in, in saying that their, their failure was they walked away from grace. They walked away from promise. And they moved into a law-based system. That seems to be the idea, right? Now, here we go. Now, this is the key phrase. The dispensation must be distinguished from the covenant. This is where he says you've got to separate the two. You cannot keep them together. Why can you not keep them together? One's the test and conditional. The other one is unconditional. You see why he's separating them? The dispensation has a test. It's going to have a failure. It's going to have judgment. It's going to have change. The covenant, no test, no failure, no change. That's going to be the, uh, I don't know, well, we'd have to look at the text. I don't know how he's going to handle it. We'll We'll have to break that down. All right, because that, I know that, that raises all kinds of questions because some people would say, well, wait a minute, the language in the covenant is conditional. But almost no one goes with the idea that the Abrahamic covenant is conditional. Just to make sure we're clear, nobody sees the Abrahamic covenant as conditional, even though the language may be read as being conditional, but nobody sees it that way. Nobody. All right, covenant theology doesn't see it that way. Nobody sees it that way. All right, and if we make it conditional, then, oh, man, I don't know what we do then the whole Abrahamic covenant is over. Does everybody make sense? If the Abrahamic covenant is conditional, can we all agree nobody has it then? Nobody. So then that would be like a major theological problem that I don't even want to begin to try to unpack right now. All right? So far, so good? All right, so I want to make sure we understand this. According to Schofield, and and those who are listening online who may want to start arguing with me, I am not making an argument whether this is right or whether this is wrong. I'm trying to identify... I'm trying to identify the system, right? 
And what I'm trying to demonstrate is that this system, whether people want to acknowledge it or not, they didn't even bother to read their Schofield Bible. I'm sorry, you've been buying into this and you've been reading your Bible like this because it was. you cannot understand the impact of this system upon modern-day Christianity. Okay? Most, most evangelical Protestant churches and independent fundamental back wouldn't even exist without this. Their entire system is based off this. This changed Christianity forever. Right? The, the fact that people don't understand the history of it does not, de- does not in any way lessen its impact or its influence. Just because uh, some people took their Schofield Bibles and went to town and tried to understand it and everyone else ignored it, you still, well, you may have been the one ignoring it, but you were still buying into it and reading your Bible that way. So I, I, I'm trying to make sure we understand this system. So he wants us to see the dispensation is separate from the covenant. What I want you to see is this. This is very, 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 very important. The way he understands the covenant is this. The covenant has all these promises of great blessings, but the way you obtain the blessing is being where? In the land. That is absolutely like, that is, changes your entire understanding of everything, right? Because if it requires you to be in the land, then who, these promises cannot just be immediately taken from Israel and given to whom? Anybody else. Unless we get the land. Right? So that's why this land issue becomes a big thing over and over. And that's why, and, and then when you get to the Palestinian covenant, it's all about land, 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 right? Sometimes it's referred to as the land covenant. Now the issue is, if we get to the new covenant and land is mentioned, then land is still a part of it. And that's where everything comes. That's why you, you have to say Israel only is going to get these promises So think about it this way. If the promises in the covenant are unconditional, if they are for Israel and it requires them to be in the land to get it, then there's only one way for them to get it. They have to be a nation and they have to be in the land. And God's going to have to do it or it would be conditioned on them. Then it wouldn't be unconditional. Okay. Okay, what does he say? In the continuance through the centuries of this stewardship of truth, believers from the church age are called upon to trust God as Abraham did to his dwelling inheritance, and thus enter into the blessings of the covenant which inaugurated the biblical faith promises. Okay. God's promises to Abraham and his descendants did not terminate at Sinai with the giving of the law. Both Old Testament and New Testament are full of post-Sinaitic promises. Okay. But as a specific test of Israel's stewardship of divine truth, the dispensational promises included, though not annulled, by the law that was given at Sinai. Okay. They're kind of backing off a little bit. All right. Modifying it. So, not so much that they. So, in 1917, he kind of went more with the idea they failed, it's over. But he, and later on, he seems to, well, I don't know, he, in 1960, he's not obviously alive, he's dead, right? So whomever decided to start editing his system in 1960 comes along and says so much, 
It wasn't annulled, but it was simply superseded. Right. We enter into the blessings by faith. By faith. All right. Which we, we, we do know that we, we receive some of the blessings from it. Right. So, all right. That's, that's interesting. But we'll, we'll continue with what he said in 1917. But it's interesting that they had to... Mo- and you can see why they would try to modify that, right? Well... True, they, they would have uh, maybe strengthened the land part, but I think the issue that was, co- I, think it, as, I think anyone who reads it, the problem is you're like, wait a minute. So what, what, what happened when they said we would keep the law? Like, they, do they fit? Like, what happens? And so he seems to come along and kind of at least weaken that part, that, it, that it's not completely annulled, it's just superseded, like almost like there was a problem there, but he doesn't, it doesn't have the same strong language as the 1917, basically like, you blow it. You walked away from grace. Does it even say he, they walked away from grace in that? that see, yeah, they, come, they, they lessened that because I think that's where everyone gets a little confused. Like, what happened? What did they do? And there they seem to lessen it a little bit. So that's interesting that the later uh, versions, but we're going to stick with the 1917 for now, but that's interesting to see that. All right, now, so, and he wants to separate the two. Everybody remember that? Okay, wait, I'm back to the dispensation of human government. I'm like, what is just going on here? Okay, all right. Um, The dispensation must be distinguished uh, from the covenant. The former is a mode of testing. The latter is everlasting because unconditional. The law did not end the Abrahamic covenant. So I guess here he's kind of saying that, right? Uh. It did not end the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, hang on. The law did not end the Abrahamic covenant, but was an, an intermediate disciplinary dealing till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. Right? So in other words, what, now we do agree there. The, we know it doesn't end the covenant. The law doesn't end the covenant. We know that. His argument was that it ended the dispensation. All right, so we definitely, because that's why he's got to separate these two over and over and over. He says the law does not basically end the Abrahamic covenant, but was an intermediate discipline dealing till the seed should come whom the promise was made. Only the dispensation as a testing of Israel ended in the giving of the law. Only the dispensation as testing of Israel ended. That's the only part that ended was the dispensation as far as testing, because each dispensation is a period of time in which what happens? Testing, testing, testing. All right, everybody got that? All right, now, he is going to, if I can find where he does this, where did he do this? Um, i got to follow his his notes here. He's going to break it down. Does he, does he break? Here we go. Um, he's going to give us the Abrahamic covenant. So now we can take our notes on the Abrahamic covenant. He's going to break down the Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. All right. And guess how many parts he's going to break the covenant down into? Seven. 
because he, oh, he, at this point, he still loved his seven, his seven, 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 seven. He loves those sevens, right? Okay. Now I think later, it would be interesting to know who comes along and starts editing it. I'm not a fan of that, right? Because, right, I, I know they combine it, but I still like, if Schofield put it in its Schofield system, we need to keep Schofield system, right? And then we need to call the new system, whoever edited it, whoever came along and started to change it. Maybe the introductions there give you information on who came along and decided to do so. But unless Schofield published a change, then I would, I would rather just say, here's, here's I, I, I like to do this. I like to say, and I'm not saying this is an accurate representation, but for our purposes of this discussion, I'm going to call Schofield the classic dispensation. Right? Because remember, there's all kinds. And then there's all kinds. There's modified, ultra-dispensational. There's, the, there's multiple different kinds. But I, we want to know the classic, because if you know the classic, then when you hear any of the modified versions, you at least are familiar with what's coming. You know where it's coming from, right? No. It comes before him. It comes before him. Right. And depending on who you listen to, it goes way back, but not everyone agrees with that. But okay. All right, here we go. I'm going to read, this is on page 24 of the 1917. Here we go. The Abrahamic covenant is formed, Genesis 12, uh, chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. It is confirmed in Genesis chapter 13, and then he names all the verses where it's confirmed. And is it, it is in seven distinct parts. Seven. What? It says in seven distinct parts. Here we go. You ready? Number one. I will make of thee a great nation. I will make of thee a great nation. That's part number one. All right. Are you ready for this? This was fulfilled in three ways. I will make thee a great nation was fulfilled in three ways. Everybody ready? Number one, natural posterity, dust of the earth. A natural posterity. This is the Hebrew people. This is the nation of Israel. This is the Jews. Everybody got that? And he takes that phrase from as the dust of the earth. Okay, when it's talking about them, he's like the dust of the earth is referring to the natural posterity. Right? Then he says, now, the second way this is fulfilled is in a spiritual posterity. A spiritual posterity, and it's taking from the phrase, look now towards heaven, so shall thy seed be. And who, does, who, is, who is the spiritual posterity? Who is the spiritual posterity? Oh, come on. Everybody knows the song, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. Who are you? Let's all praise the Lord. Okay, so then who? Okay, yeah, we don't need to do the hand motions there. Okay, but everybody gets the, everybody gets the part, right? So who would then the spiritual posterity be? All believers, whether Jew or Gentile. All right, so it's fulfilled to the natural posterity, the Jews, the spiritual posterity, those who believe or believers, 
And then what's the third, third way it's fulfilled? Look at Genesis 17, 18 through 20, and tell me what you discover. Genesis 17, 18 through 20, and see what we discover here. Tell tell me what you find. 18 through 20. What do you discover, and do you think it helps you answer the question? Okay, well, through Ishmael. Yeah, so in other words, I will, uh, so the, the first part of this covenant, the Abrahamic covenant is I will make thee a great nation. It's fulfilled in three ways. The natural posterity, which is the dust of the earth, that is the Hebrew people, and a spiritual posterity, that is all believers, and then it is fi- fulfilled also through Ishmael. And that is found in Genesis 17, 18 through 20, because it is said that God will bring a great nation from Ishmael, all right? So there we go. I will make of thee a great nation. Now, in some ways, you could argue, then why does it use the singular? And why does it not say, well, make the great nations? Because that seems to be multiple ones. But okay, we could have that debate all day, right? Ishmael. Ishmael, yeah. Fulfilled through Ishmael, if you need to do it that way. Yeah, I don't know what, where they're going there, all right? We could... We could track that but yeah right so far so good everybody got that number two i will bless thee i will make of thee a great nation i will bless thee all right this is fulfilled in two ways this is fulfilled in two ways what are the two ways this is fulfilled There we go. Temporally, Genesis 13, 14, 15, uh, verse 17, then 15, 18. I mean, he a bunch of scriptures. So let's just, we won't look them all up. He's going he's gonna to bless thee temporally, right? And then he's going to bless him spiritually. Look at Genesis 15, 6 real quick and tell me what you find there. Genesis 15, 6. Uh, I think I see the spiritual blessing here. Righteousness. Okay, imputed righteousness. All right. Okay, so there we go. He's going to, I will bless thee. It's, it's temporal blessings and spiritual blessings. All right. So there's seven parts to the Abrahamic covenant. Number one, I will make of thee a great nation. That's fulfilled in three ways. I will bless thee is fulfilled in two ways. And then number three, and make thy name Great. Now, he doesn't offer scripture here other than we do know the covenant promises that he will make, uh, uh, make thy name great. All Schofield says here in this section is Abraham is one of the universal names. Now, that is true because guess, uh, Muslims who, who accept the first five books of the Bible, they honor Abraham. Jews honor Abraham. And all Christians. So those are three of the dominant world religions. 
Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, and they all honor Abraham. All right, so you could say that his name would be great if you're honored by three of the <laughs> world religions. I think that's a pretty good, uh, I, think that, I think we could say that one was fulfilled. Do we agree with that? All right, next, thou shall be a blessing. Number four, thou shall be a blessing. Look at Galatians 3, verses 13 through 14. 3, 13 through 14. What do we see in Galatians 3, 13 through 14? Okay, he's going to be a blessing, and how does that blessing come to people? Through Jesus Christ. All right, everybody see that? All right, so far so good. All right, number five. Any questions yet? These are straightforward. I will bless them that bless thee. I will bless them that bless thee. It says, in fulfillment, closely related to the next clause. All right, we'll, we'll, we'll look at it. He, he's going to connect five and six together. That's fine. We'll just right now just put number five, I will bless them that bless thee. Meaning basically what? Those who bless Israel will be blessed. And then the next part, number six, you know what number six is going to be, right? And I will curse and curse him that curseth thee. All right, and then Schofield says this, and this is crazy. This is 1917 he's saying this, right? Because in 1917, Israel is, I mean, it's so crazy sometimes. Like, I know other people mock Schofield and Darby, and they mock them. And 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 look, I understand you may disagree with the system, and I think what people have a tendency to do is they see the modern outworkings of some dispensationalists making, you know, dates and crazy claims, but you can't, you got to respect these people at the time because when, when, when this system's developed, there's no Israel. There's no Israel. Okay, and, and you got to respect the fact that they were like, we don't care. The scriptures say God's not done with them. We're going to go with that. And everybody's like, you're an idiot. Okay, and all of a sudden they're like, which demonstrates that what should not impact our, uh, our hermeneutic should. Now, however, what's frustrating is Schofield kind of did that with the gap theory. He's like, oh, there's this evolutionary concept and I've got to be able to explain the millions of years. Boom, I'll put a gap between verse one and verse two. So in that round, see, on one hand, we are all, we're all guilty of what? What does that demonstrate to all of us? Our inconsistency in our hermeneutic. Yeah, right. where everyone is inconsistent in their hermeneutic. Right? If, you, if you, you want to write down a practical quote, because when I get into all the academics, people say I don't offer enough practical things, but I think I always do. Here's a clear practical uh, principle, right? Every, the Christian life is the never-ending attempt to try to identify and eradicate the inconsistency in our own hermeneutic. The Christian life is the never-ending task, right? It never ends 
trying to identify and eradicate the inconsistency in our hermeneutic. If you cannot, di- if you cannot see the inconsistency in your hermeneutic, there's no hope. The problem is people have a hard time identifying. And when, and when push comes to shove, when you call out someone on the inconsistency in their hermeneutic, how do they typically respond? They get defensive and they'll be like, no. Like to me, I'll, I'll just show you what I believe is an absolute inconsistency in a hermeneutic. You teach and you yell and you scream. We are not justified by an infused righteousness. We are justified by an imputed righteousness. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone, apart from works. And then turn around and say, what, proves, get what, what, what is the proof of your imputed righteousness? Your actions. You can't see the inconsistency in that? Actions can never prove imputed righteousness because it is imputed. <laughs> it's accredited to your account. It doesn't do anything to you. It doesn't change you. And people are like, no, 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 no. Your actions. Well, if my actions prove my justification, then my justification is based off an infused righteousness that I cooperate with, which is Roman Catholicism. But see, it, it doesn't matter the issue. We have to be willing to go, am I inconsistent here? On one hand, I, I, I applaud them because that's amazing. They're like, hey, Israel, Israel. And like, how can it be so Israel-focused when there's no Israel? Because he's doing what? And, and at least in this area, he's looking to the scripture irregardless of what he sees. I, I, look, I'm going to give him credit for that. For where, I'm going to criticize him all day for the gap theory. But I understood what he was trying to do. He was trying to reconcile the gap theory with what he what was happening in the culture? Because it's the never-ending task of a Christian to identify and eradicate the inconsistency and in our hermeneutic. I'm going to repeat that line a million times and then ask you in a couple of weeks, well, what is the never-ending task as a Christian? And if I don't get it right, I'm going to be like, well, I told you to write it down. All right, but here you go. All right. So number six, I will curse him that curseth thee. This is what he says wonderfully fulfilled in the history of the dispersion. It has, invariably fa- it has invariably faced ill with the people who have persecuted the Jew, well with those who have protected him. The future will still more remarkably prove this principle. And remember, he believes that the judgment of nations, which occurs where? We looked at it this morning. Matthew 25, Matthew 25. He believes strongly that the judgment of nations in Matthew 24 is a judgment of nations based off what? How they treated Israel. Okay. Now, not everyone believes that. That's a, that's a clear dispensational teaching. All right. Most, uh, especially if you know anyone who goes to a church who claims to be a reformed, they will utterly reject that. In almost every case. But that, that judgment in Matthew 25 is hard to connect with other judgments. It doesn't seem to make any, it does not seem to fit the Revelation 20 great white throne judgment in any way, shape, or form. All right? So, just so that you know that. All right? So far, so good. How many do we have? 
We have six, so that means we're missing one, right? What's number seven? In thee, in Abraham, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. All right. Here we go. In thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. This is the great evangelical promise fulfilled in Abraham's seed, Christ. It brings into greater uh, uh, it brings into greater focus the promise of the Edemic covenant concerning the seed of the woman. Genesis three fifteen. So uh, in these shall all the families be blessed, and how is that going to occur? Through Christ. Uh, I've got to read the next part. Mm, I've got to read the next part. I don't know where he's pulling this from. He's got a note here. This is fascinating. All right. I'm going to bring, I, this is going to seem out of place, but we're going to mention this. I know we're going to run out of time, but this is worth a million dollars right here. Okay. All right. Now, so those are the, that's the Abrahamic covenant. Just so, so before I read this note, Abrahamic covenant and the dispensation, the two must be, separated. The dispensation contains a test. He believes they failed the test at the giving of the law when they basically said, we'll take law over promise. I don't know if I completely agree with that, but that's what he claims, right? Okay. The covenant is unconditional and those are all the promises. And please note, all of these promises in this covenant is God saying, I'm going to do this for you. This is going to happen to you. Like nothing, nothing based on what you do. However, for them to receive all the blessings that are ultimately connected with this, they have to be in the land. Now, with that in mind, look what he says here. This is very interesting. We're going to look up a lot of passages here. Okay, you ready? It has right underneath number seven, note, all capitalized, N-O-T-E, note, in bold type. And it says this, the gift of the land is modified by prophecies of three dispossessions and restorations. So the gift of the land is modified by prophecies of three dispossessions and restorations. All right? Let's just look at some of these really quick. Uh, we're we're, going to look at a bunch of scriptures here. We'll just finish this out. I wanted to get to the next one, but this is worth it, okay? Because now we're we're back to this land issue, okay? Someone go to Genesis 15 and look at verses 13, 14, and 16 and tell me what happens here. Genesis 15, 13, 14, and 16. Fifteen, thirteen, fourteen, sixteen. All right, what do we have? Okay, stop right here. What are you saying? This is a prophecy of what? A dispossession. They're going to go to Egypt, right? That's a, that's a, look at verse 14. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterwards they shall come out with greater substance, meaning there's going to be a restoration, all right? And verse 16. All right, so in other words, they're going to, they're going to be dispossessed, 
they're going to be restored and they're going to come back to the land. Everybody see that? Yes? It says, look at Jeremiah 25, 11. Jeremiah 25, 11. Jeremiah 25, 11, and 12. We looked at this, obviously. We spent 70 hours in this book in three months. Jeremiah 25, 11. What happens in Jeremiah 25, 11? 70, 70 years in Babylon. This is the second dispossession. Right? What happens in verse 12? Jeremiah 25, 12. All right, judgment's going to come upon them, right? Judgment's going to come upon them, right? So this is another a concept of a dispossession. There's going to be judgment, and they're going to come back and return to the land, all right? Now, go to Deuteronomy 28. Oh, wait, Deuteronomy 28. What could that be? What could Deuteronomy 28 be? I've only, we talked about this now a million times. Palestinian covenant, right? Okay, we should have this down by now, right? All right, Deuteronomy 28. Look at verses 62 through 65. What do you discover in Deuteronomy 28, 62 through 65? Oh, this is speaking of a dispossession where they're going to be scattered all over the place, right? Does everybody see that? What happens in chapter 30 of Deuteronomy, verses 1 through 3? Deuteronomy 30, 1 through 3. He's going to gather them from all the nations. This is. So this is, once again, so this is what he says. Two dispossessions and restorations have been accomplished. Two times they've been dispossessed and restored. Two times. Are you ready for the next part? Israel is now in the third dispersion from which she will be restored at the return of the Lord as king under the Davidic covenant. This is 1917. And he's saying what? They're currently dispersed. They're currently dispossessed. They're going to get it back. Now, he thinks they're going to get it back when? See, he's thinking of an ultimate fulfillment, right? Which, we, there's only one place we can put it. The millennial king. And, and I know people hate that, hate the millennial king. I know the reform world mocks that. Because according to the reform world, uh, when is the millennial kingdom? Right now, you're living in it. And it's trash. It's absolute trash. This is the worst millennial kingdom ever. Okay, if you're going to give me, I mean, how many people just died in the floods in what, Libya? Was like over 10,000 people are dead now just from flood? I mean, it's insane. The numbers are horrifying. Like, we can go on every day about all the horrible things happening in our world. If this is the millennial kingdom, I want my money back. I want, I want there's something went horribly wrong. Horribly wrong. Horribly, horribly, horribly wrong. Okay, but, okay. So, or maybe our expectations. Oh, oh, and Satan is bound right now. Aren't you glad about that? He's bound right now. Aren't you good? He's just got a long, long, long leash, but he's bound. Okay, all right. So. Okay. 
at, at the return of the Lord as king under the Davidic covenant. All right? He's going to give us a bunch of scriptures here. Are you ready for these? Right, these are very important scriptures when you're dealing with the never-ending debate over this subject about Israel and land. Right? Now, here, now, as a good Bible student, as a good Bible student, remember sometimes the best thing to establish your hermeneutic is, remember, we don't want to use a system. So we don't want to use a system to identify our hermeneutic, but we have no problem taking his system, going to the text, and then asking ourselves some basic important questions. So let me ask you this. Everybody paying attention? Dispersion number one, or dispossession number one. Let's say that's Egypt, right? That's what he identifies as being number one. Was that a literal dispossession? Where they literally returned? The second one, he, he references Babylonian, Babylonian captivity. Was that a literal dispossession? Where they literally returned? All right. Now, his argument then is going to be, if there's any promise, if they're dispersed, which we know they're dispossessed at this time, we know. Like any, anyone in history could be like, after 70 AD, they're dispossessed from the land, right? They're gone. So then everyone knows in 1917, they're dispossessed. But if there's any scripture that seems to indicate a restoration and a regathering based off the other dispossessions would require you to interpret them there you go. And that doesn't make you stupid or dumb or not sophisticated or you haven't read enough systematic theologies as some reform people would say. That just means you're like, well, wait a minute. These two dispossessions were literal. My hermeneutic would have to demand then. It has to be literal. It would almost demand that. And that, that has nothing to do with like all the other arguments everyone bring up. It has nothing to do with that. The issue is what hermeneutic are you going to use? And this specific area, it would require this. Now, he's going to give a bunch of scriptures. We're going to go quick. All right, everybody ready? The first one, he has Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 3. Which reads? All right, he's saying that that's a promise that they're going to be gathered from every nation and brought back. He is seeing that as an, that, that has not ever been ultimately fulfilled. All right? Okay, and so he's, he's looking for then what kind of a fulfillment? A literal. Then he says, Jeremiah 23, verses 5 through 8. 23, 5 through 8. Jeremiah 23, 5 through 8. All right, there we go. Jeremiah 23, this seems that king is going to be raised up, right? And that king is, oh, what's going to be the result of that king? Israel and Judah. There we go. That's a promise. They're going to get the land. They're going to get the land. All right? And, and who's going to usher it in? 
A king, right, the righteous king, a fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Guess what? That did not happen coming to Babylonian captivity. They didn't get this king like this. And they haven't yet, exactly. All right, Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37, 21 through 25. Ezekiel 37, 21 through 25. What do we have in Ezekiel 37, 21 through 25? I know I'm having you read it, but that's okay. Going to gather them on every side, bring them into their own land. They're going to be one nation. One king. Of them both. That's the north and south reunited with one king. That has never happened. And now, I know Dr. J. Vernon McGee believes that David will be resurrected. I disagree with Dr. J. Vernon McGee. I don't believe David is going to be resurrected. I think that that means Christ. That's what I think. All right. Yeah. The land I promised. Yeah, the land I promised. This is the fulfillment of the promise. And now he said, go to Luke chapter 1, verses 30 to 33. Luke 1, 30 through 33. Luke 1, 30 through 33. What do we have in Luke 1, 30 through 33? There we go. There we go. And once again, that promise is a reference to Israel, right? The, uh, David's throne, Jacob. He's going to rule over Jacob, Right? Okay, that's, that's very Israel specific. And then go to Acts chapter 15, verses 14 through 17. Acts chapter 15, verses 14 through 17. What happens in Acts 15, 14 through 17? All right. Is that all, all the way to 17? 14 to 17. After he's gotten the Gentiles, then he's going to return after something that has fallen down and it's and, and, it's, and then everyone's going to be coming to where? Israel. Yep, there you have it. There's Acts 15, 14 through 17. I cannot stress the importance of writing those scriptures down. Deuteronomy 30, verse 3. Jeremiah 23, 5 through 8. Ezekiel 37, 21 through 25. Luke 1, 30 through 33. Acts 15, 14 through 17. And no matter how clear that is, and no matter even though you have, what the hermeneutical clues to interpret this is the other dispossessions. Those are your hermeneutical clues. So I don't need Schofield's system there. Schofield's system may point me in that direction, but I leave the system and I go, whoa. If my hermeneutic says that dispossession was real and the return was real and the restoration was real and the land was real and that happened twice, then the third promise of not only the dispossessed, well, they know they're dispossessed, 
the promise of the return has to be, look, I can't give that to the church. It makes no sense. Right? There we have it. There we have it. Now, that, we, that finishes everything we can do with the Abrahamic covenant and with the, uh, the dispensation, dispensation of promise. And the next dispensation begins where? Where does the dispensation end? 19, Exodus 19, 8. And that starts the fifth dispensation. Oh, 1827. Interesting. Okay. All right, that's interesting. All right. But we will go there. And guess this time what's interesting here is it says the fifth dispensation. Guess what's not mentioned with this? The next covenant is not mentioned here. The next covenant is introduced where? Does anybody know? Exodus 20. Okay, well, they say the next covenant is introduced in chapter 20. And it says the, uh, the law, the commandments, the fifth or Mosaic covenant. That's where he has it here. Now, sometimes when he gives the scriptures, he seems to give them one place, but then in the Bible, his notes seem to fall in a different place. But the, the dispensation begins in 19, right before 19.8, or 19.8 is where the, the previous dispensation ends and the new one begins. Okay, because he said that that's where they fell, the, the previous dispensation. And then the covenant, the Mosaic covenant begins in chapter 20. And immediately, you know, the, is the Mosaic covenant one of grace? No. Because it is all law everywhere, right? Get that? Okay. So do you see how important that uh, the understanding the difference between the dispensation and the covenant? Everybody got that? Now, uh, I think we can all agree. It's a little hard to understand that dispensation. Can we all agree it's hard to understand that dispensation of promise? Because you're kind of like, okay, I see the promise, but... I don't understand. My thing is I don't understand the failure of it, right? It just seems, because I agree. If God's like, here's my law, what were they supposed to do? I guess the implication is they were supposed to acknowledge, we can't. We can't. We need the promise that you made. But they failed. So I, I struggle with that. I don't know what to do with that. But what I will be absolutely dogmatic about is the Abrahamic covenant I think we have to see the Abrahamic covenant as being unconditional and of grace. Has to be. Because if it was based off anything else, then the Abrahamic covenant is over. It's done. Because everyone would have failed at a million. Because anytime, whether it's a covenant or whether it's a dispensation, if there's something people have to do, they're not going to do it. I think we can all agree on that. All right. There we go. That's a lot of information. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this evening. Lord, all we can do is say we are grateful for a, the Abrahamic covenant and our ability to, be, to reap some of those blessings through Christ. Uh, Lord, we are very much aware that anytime there is a law or a command, we will fall short. Our only hope is your promises, not in your law. Your law exposes our failures, but your promise is the only thing we can find comfort and rest in. Help us always flee to your promises. 
but be willing to acknowledge our failure under your law. We ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,